Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is the book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Club Book podcast features Julie Kramer at her February 11th event at the Central Park Amphitheater in Washington County. Set in the cutthroat world of television news, Julie Kramer's mystery thrillers draw from her extensive career in the industry as a news producer for NBC and CBS. Her first novel, Stalking Susan, won both a Minnesota Book Award and the 2008 RT Reviewer's Choice Award for Best First Mystery. Her fourth, Killing Kate, won the Daphne du Maurier Award for Mainstream Mystery Suspense. Kramer has been a finalist for the Anthony, Barry, Seamus, Mary Higgins Clark, and RT Best Amateur Sleuth Awards, to name just a few. Her newest title, Delivering Death, hit bookstores in January 2014. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, we're back. Thank you so much for coming out tonight and picking me over men's figure skating. <laughs> I was a little worried when I realized that I was up against the Olympics tonight. Um, at the time we set up the club book appearance, that had not occurred to us at all. And the Minneapolis-St. Paul area is actually the highest um, more people watch the Olympics here than anywhere else in the country. We have the highest numbers here. So the fact that you came, hey, thank you, thank you, thank you. My new book, Delivering Death, has a, a little bit different title than some of the others, and we'll talk a little bit about that. We've had Stalking Susan, Missing Mark, Silencing Sam, Killing Kate, Shunning Sarah, and Delivering Death. So you may wonder whether death is a character or how we came to that. But in this particular mystery, murder, madness, and marriage collide. When my TV reporter heroine gets a package in the mail containing teeth. Now, she does what any of us would do in those circumstances and takes them to her dentist to see what she can find out and ends up following clues to an identity theft ring. Now, identity theft is kind of hot these days. Has anybody, you know, shopped at Target lately? <laughs> um, it's really been in the news. But um, at the time I was writing the book, there were a lot of other things in the news. I'm highly influenced by happenings around me as I write. And while I was writing Delivering Death, there was a lot of white collar crime in the area going on. So as you read it, if the names Denny Hecker or Tom Petters come to mind, I couldn't blame you. Anyway, from the identity theft ring, um, my heroine, TV reporter Riley Sparts, wants to cover that 
and an ensuing homicide, but her news director boss thinks that they will get higher ratings if she covers a giant wedding at the Mall of America. And you know, he's probably right, but um, she persists. Now, in the course of doing a book, writing is also about research, and I find the more you know about what you're writing, the more you can write with authority, and the easier it is to tell the story. Now, for delivering death, I mean, I'm fortunate for my entire series that I'm able to live my research when it comes to the behind the scenes of TV news, but you have to do other research as well. And in this particular book, one of the things that I did was I attended an auction for Tom Petter's belongings. Now, really, really rich people, when they're convicted of running billion-dollar Ponzi schemes, like Mr. Petter's was, the government swoops in and confiscates their belongings. And they're sold to be part of a victim's fund. And it really kind of ends up being pennies on the dollar, but you know they go about doing that. Um, I attended the auction at Luther Auction in North St. Paul. I don't know if any of you have ever been there. Um, most of the good stuff had been already taken off and sold in other places, like you know the Rolex and the fast cars had their own places. This was more like a really, really rich person's garage sale. But I got there early and um, was scoping out the merchandise. And before I could get a bidding number, I needed to fill out paperwork. The government, you know, gets part of the proceeds. And I had to fill out paperwork attesting that I had no connection to anybody involved in the case, to Petters, to the attorneys, to nobody, before I could get a bidding number. So I did that. Um, and then as I looked at the merchandise, I noticed that there was a gentleman who was very interested in a piece of artwork. And he was even calling someone on the phone and pointing to it and talking to him. And I thought, wow, he really wants that painting. I didn't want to buy anything but I wanted to brag about bidding. <laughs> so when the piece of artwork came up and the auctioneer is calling for bids, I raised my hand. And he says, lady in the back. And then nobody else bid. <laughs> so I ended up acquiring a very large, ugly piece of artwork. It was lucky we had the van along that night. Um, and in fact, we're going to unveil it here tonight. <laughs> the name of the piece of artwork is called Reclining Bird. Reclining Bird. Now I have um, a picture of it. We'll pass around here for those of you who aren't close enough. Now, you notice Reclining Bird has a lot of vertical stripes on the matting. So I call it Jailbird. <laughs> but it's mine. I own it fair and square. Now, if anybody has questions, we don't have to wait until the very end. I know I always forget my questions by the time we get to the end. So um, we can be like the White House Press Corps. And if you have a question, you can wave wildly for attention, or you can just call it out, and we'll kind of see where our discussion goes. And that's all the encouragement our club book audience needs. Our first question comes from an audience member wondering if Julie did a lot of research before buying Reclining Bird, 
and whether the painting is famous or not. I've kind of looked and I don't see anything. But, um, you know, you're always thinking like that. And the research that I did in acquiring Reclining Bird is incorporated in the story. Those of you who have read it will recognize that there's a scene involving going to an auction of a you know, big shot white collar criminal. And so I do like to live my research. Yes? Um, the question is whether I would hang it in my home. Well, right now it's gathering dust in the basement. In fact, this is the first time it's been out since you know I got it last year. But I wanted to bring it to share it with you. Um, now, I'm kind of waiting for the obvious question. Anybody? How much would you pay for it? Anybody else? We have 10. We have 10. Anybody else? Anybody else? Um, I bid $60 for it. And with tax and fees, it's um, ended up costing me $74. If anybody thinks that, you know, they have the perfect place for it in their home, you know, see me afterwards and, you know, maybe we can work something out. Um, anyway, um, that wasn't the only research that I did in writing Delivering Death. I also laid in a casket with the lid shut. Um, to, I mean, I went to my friendly neighborhood funeral home, Mueller Lake Mortuary in White Bear Lake. I made sure I went when there weren't a lot of cars around. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to make sure, I, want, I didn't want a funeral to be going on. I didn't want to cause a scene, I just wanted to write one. And I went back, you know, into the, you know, area, and a woman greeted me and asked if she could help me. And I explained that I'd like to see some caskets. So she took me back to the showroom. Now, I didn't realize this, but funeral homes like car dealers have showrooms to display the latest models. So we looked around, and we're chatting, you know, and she's answering my questions, but it becomes kind of obvious that I'm not your typical customer because of the kind of questions I'm asking. The questions I'm asking are things like, if someone was laying in there but was still alive, would they suffocate or could they still breathe? <laughs> and I explained to her that I was an author doing research, and I think I showed her a bookmark with my picture on it, like that proved anything. Um, and she continued to answer questions, but I found out later that apparently there are people who sort of have casket fetishes, who periodically, you know, show up at funeral homes and. Um, you know, they kind of want to make sure who it is they're dealing with. But uh, she did recognize my name. And then we got to the money question when I said, would it be possible for me to try one out? <laughs> and she said, well, gee, if you tried to climb in, it would probably tip over and our insurance doesn't cover that, and so we better not do that. But I spent a career in television news. I worked for WCCO-TV for 20 years and then worked for NBC and CBS as a freelance network producer. I used to run the I-team at WCCO. Um, so I can be quite persuasive. So I said to her, how about if we move that chair in the corner over here, and that would help me get in. Um, how would that work? So finally she says, okay, but let's do it quick before someone else gets here. 
So she opened up the whole casket and helped me climb in. I went back later, no it's not, I went back later and took a picture of the book laying in it. <laughs> so if you wanna, you know, have a little see, seeing here. Um, for those of you who are curious, it was more comfortable than I expected. <laughs> nice padding, a good pillow. Um, then we came to the point where, you know, we're going to shut the lid. Now, she and I have just known each other a few minutes. <laughs> so this required a certain amount of trust on my part. Um, and she had explained to me, breathe very slowly. And she had asked me questions prior to that about whether I claustrophobic at all. And I said, I don't think so. And she said, just breathe slowly. So she shut the lid. One of the things I also wanted to know is, if you were in a casket, could you hear people talking outside? How soundproof is it? Um, and so she and I continued to talk, and I could hear her. There was about six inches of space between my face and the lid. And around the middle, because it was not sealed, she explained to me that if it's not sealed, there's still air getting in, and you will be able to breathe. There was like a little dull line of light, you know, that helped me keep my bearings. And so, you know, I, I kind of, as long as we're using car analogies, there was a lot of leg room, it was good. <laughs> and finally she's like, okay, all right, now we gotta move on, let's get out now. Um, you know, luckily I got out alive, unlike most people in that situation. And then um, I handed her my cell phone and I said, you know, would you mind taking a picture of me? And she said, we're not gonna do that. And that was the end of it. Um, I went back later and put my book in it to take a picture, you know, just kind of as a little publicity thing. And the owner of the funeral home was there, and he said, I understand you wanted your picture taken. I mean, I guess we could put you in and do it right now if you want. But I hadn't been prepared for that. And, um, you know, I mean, I was dressed really, you know, sloppy, running errands, and I didn't have any makeup and hadn't combed my hair. Although I understand they do have people who can, you know, help you with that. Um, <laughs> I mean, research, I just find, is the most fun part of the book writing process. I mean, in fact, I have to like stop myself from doing the research and sit there and actually do the writing because, you know, you're judged, a, a book is judged by being a book, not by all the fun you had while you were writing it. But, you, you know, you do a lot of different things. Like, um, I knew that there would be times where I would have to shoot people, fictionally, of course. Um, and wanted to have some experience firing a gun. The problem is, I didn't have a gun or bullets, but I knew someone who did. My friend Caroline Lowe, the crime reporter at WCCO. Now, you may not realize this, but she's also a licensed police officer. And she would take two weeks off every year and work as a state fair cop. And she'd wear a blue uniform with a badge, have a gun on her hip, and every year she had to get recertified at the shooting range. So she took me along one time. And it's kind of like a giant bowling alley, but instead of pins at the end, they has a cardboard cutout of a guy. And, you know, she gave me her gun. They put ear things to protect your ears and eye things to protect your eyes, and I pointed and I shot over and over and it, until the gun was empty and it happened so fast. I couldn't have even told you if I hit the thing or not. It was just over so fast. The gun recoiled and cut my thumb 
and my thumb was actually bleeding, and my, gun, my hand had gunshot residue on it. And all of that, you know, it's good research, and I ended up using that, you know, in one of my books. Um, and I know by now you're probably all wondering what kind of a shot I am. Okay, so the message here is don't mess with me. <laughs> now Caroline's actually a little jealous because I'm a better shot than she is. Now, as I mentioned, um, I've been lucky enough to win the Minnesota Book Award. My first book, Stalking Susan, won that. And while you've heard of it, I'm guessing that many of you may not have actually seen a Minnesota Book Award. So I brought mine along. It's extremely heavy. It's absolutely gorgeous. The bottom is Minnesota granite, and the top is glass blown by a St. Paul glass artist. It's extremely heavy. It might be a dangerous weapon. <laughs> um, <laughs> mine, I think, is just beautiful. Each year they change the shape. Mine looks like the Olympic torch. So that's kind of why I brought it along tonight. And if you want bragging rights to be able to say that you've touched the Minnesota Book Award, we can kind of pass that around. How heavy is that? Pretty heavy. <laughs> now the Minnesota Book Award and I have traveled about 5,000 miles around Minnesota from the Iowa border to the Canadian border, from Wisconsin to the Dakotas. And we've never had any troubles, except once. And that was when I was speaking at the women's prison in Shakopee. If you think airport security is tough, prison security is even tougher. Now, I got through just fine, but the book award was having some troubles. <laughs> they were not sure if they were gonna let it inside the prison. So they had to call the prison, you know, honchos um, to come down to the security area and inspect it. And they looked at it and they went back and they whispered some and they finally decided, all right, we will let the book award inside the prison. But they warned me that I was not to let the inmates have it. So they kept kind of a you know, close eye on it while I was there speaking. In the course of my books, um, what ties them together is the fact that they are all set in a television newsroom. What I really like is when people come up to me or write to me and tell me how they watch news in a different way, having read my books. And Minneapolis St. Paul is a very sophisticated TV news audience. I mean, we're considered one of the top markets in the country when it comes to local television news. My books all, besides having murder and mayhem in them, they also have usually a journalistic ethical issue that's addressed in it. Um, and it might be how resources are spent. For instance, in Delivering Death, the, ch the, the Channel 3 newsroom where my protagonist works gets a brand new set. And there's a discussion about priorities, about how money should be spent, and the importance of cosmetics and things like that. Um, for Missing Mark, which is about a wedding dress want ad for sale never worn, and we know there's always a good story behind those, the journalistic issue was um, missing people. Which missing people get media attention? Because not all missing people are created equal, not by the police, 
and not by the media. For, um, for, for instance, for silencing Sam, the media ethical issue in that particular one, a gossip columnist is murdered, and the discussion is the line between news and gossip, how it's narrowing. And these are all things that in the real world of television news are all being addressed. Um, for there, we had a dead gossip columnist, and we had wind turbines being bombed in Minnesota. So we had two forms of hot air, gossip and wind. <laughs> um, in Shunning Sarah, my book right before delivering death, we had, um, and that's one in which an Amish woman is murdered. But the journalistic issue was whether um, the advent of one-man bands, meaning um, in TV newsrooms, reporters, there typically are extra people, reporters and photographers, um, and now the reporters are doing all the camera work and you know, audio and all that stuff. So it kind of addresses you know, the pros and cons of that. While it saves money, there you know, often is quality that is diminished with that. So like I said, besides murder and mayhem, we have all these other things going on. In Shunning Sarah, what it came down to is we had a woman's body discovered and she couldn't be identified because her face was damaged. A police forensic artist had to draw what she would have looked like were she alive. Once that's done, her face was broadcast around the region and eventually she was identified as Sarah Yoder, an Amish woman. Now, those of you familiar with Amish know that one's picture can be a touchy subject. In the book, her family is outraged, not as much that she's been murdered, but that the picture continues to be broadcast in the hopes of clues and leads to the killer. Her family would rather the killer go free than that the picture continue to be out there because that's a violation of the biblical ban on graven images and a picture of oneself is prideful, which is a sin. Now, I did a lot of research in Harmony, Minnesota, which is Minnesota's largest old, art, old order Amish community. And in the course of doing the research, I visited some farms and bought some things. Here we have a little Amish doll, and you see it also does not have a face. It's a sad little Raggedy Ann doll. Um, we'll pass that around for anybody who wants to look at that. Yes, a question. Our next question asker comments on how unique Julie Kramer's plots are in each of her books and inquires how she comes up with them, whether they are from current events or past news stories she has covered. For my plots, um, I am highly influenced by happenings around me as I write. But you have to, uh, there are two kinds of writers, those who outline and those who don't outline. The plotters are the ones who outline and the ones who don't we call pantsters. We kind of write by the seat of our pants. When I start with a book, I have a concept of the idea of it, a premise, but I don't know who the killer is. I don't know how we get there. That all kind of unfolds. I have a difficult time outlining, and I think it's because I worked so long in news. You don't outline the news. You just wait for it to happen, and so outlining feels foreign to me. But what I do is I, and some people kind of, they get really hung up on will people believe it when they start writing the story. And I think that's the wrong question to ask on page one of your manuscript. Because if you do your job right as an author, people will believe anything. 
because you guys all watch the news every night, and there's nothing as crazy in my books as what you will see on the news. So I think, will people believe it, is a better question to ask on page 100 of your manuscript. Now, an example that I like to give for that is, let's say you have a woman who's decided to kill a rival for her lover's attention. And to do the deeds, she has to drive across the country. And to speed things up, she's decided to wear a diaper. <laughs> and while we're at it, let's make her an astronaut. Now, those of you laughing realize that that is not a just, you know, made-up fictional story. That is a rip-from-the-headlines, real-life news event. But as a writer, if you propose that as a story, you might talk yourself out of it and think no one will believe it. But I'm here to tell you people will believe anything. From book to book, I'm glad that you said that you thought my plots are unique because I really try from book to book to make them dramatically different, to take you inside a different kind of news story or murder so that they don't, I don't want people to feel like they're, you know, reading the same book twice. There's a balance in writing them because they have the same protagonists, so are part of a series. But I've specifically written them so that they're self-contained, so that at the end you know what you need to know about that particular story. Otherwise, um, there are people who have to start at the beginning of series. And you know if you're one of them. And if you are, then I tell you, you know, start with Stalking Susan and work your way up. But otherwise, they are designed so that you could pick up any of them and it would make sense to you. And then if you liked it, you could go back and read the others or go forward and read the others. So there's really a balancing act that goes on there. Um, and my last couple of books got reviewed in places that might not normally review them, particularly the Amish one, because there's a lot of Amish literature. And I really enjoyed the reviews that said, you know, this is book five or book six in the series. I hadn't read any of the others, but it made perfect sense to me. Because you want to include enough backstory that someone coming cold to the series can pick it up and follow along and not be distracted. But you also, the faithful fans who've been with you from the beginning, you don't want them rolling their eyes saying, here we go again, how many times is she going to tell us the same old thing? So I'm really glad to try and kind of, you know, make that mix. Now, well, um, when I, squeaking a little bit there, that's what they call tone in the news business. Um, when I started out, you know, when I would write news, and basically inside every journalist, you kind of feel there's a book inside and eventually you have to put up or shut up. But when I wrote news, I would often find myself thinking, darn the facts, if it weren't for these facts, boy, could I tell a heck of a story. But rules are rules. And facts are everything when it comes to news. So when I sat down to try and write fiction, I had expected it to be easier. But I found myself missing the facts. And after a career on the straight and narrow, making stuff up kind of felt like cheating. So I had issues I had to work through before I could you know, feel free enough to write fiction. But once I did, I found that news was an excellent background. I knew how to type fast. I could write lean and mean. I was good at deadlines, and I have literally interviewed hundreds of people, many of them on the best or worst days of their lives. 
it comes down to the narrator. There are two kinds of narrators. There are, you know, reliable narrators and unreliable narrators. My protagonist is a reliable narrator. If she's telling you something, you can believe that she believes it to be true. But some books use unreliable narrators where it ends up the narrator, you know, is not always truthful with the audience. Now tonight I've told you that, you know, I brought the Minnesota Book of Lord along, you know, so you could, you know, have a, you know, chance to touch it and brag about it. But what if I'm actually planning to kill somebody tonight? And now with the Minnesota Book Award as the murder weapon, all of your fingerprints are on it. <laughs> um, we can talk about my path to publication, my books. You can, you know, whine about the media. You know, we can let this go in whatever direction you want it to go. So if you have a question, feel free. Um, one of the things I'd like to mention is things that you don't necessarily know about being an author. Um, things you never knew about being an author. Sometimes people write you emails that are really, really nice about how much they love your book. But sometimes they write you emails about how, like, how much they hate your book. Um, and I, you know, I've been told just ignore those. You know, not every book is going to resonate with every person. Just move on. Don't even pay any attention. Um, after shunning Sarah, I got an email from um, a man who said he was Amish. Now, I didn't ask him, okay, if you're so Amish, buddy, how come you got a computer? How come you got an email? And how come you're reading fiction? Because, like, old order Amish are not supposed to read fiction. They're only supposed to read nonfiction. Minnesota has the fastest growing old order Amish community in the country, and that's in Harmony. He was from Indiana. He told me he was Amish, he read my book, he was quite upset, and he felt that I was trying to make Amish look bad. Those were his words. Um, I explained to him that it was my fifth book, and that I've made doctors, lawyers, reporters, cops, veterinarians, all sorts of people look bad. And if the Amish took a hit, well, you know, these kinds of things happen. Um, everybody gets a turn. I know I probably should not have, you know, done this back and forth. But being a journalist, I have spent a career asking people questions and expecting answers. So I do respond to emails. And if people have questions, I do try to answer them. So we went back and forth a little bit. And then I got an email from him in which he said, I have given the matter much thought. I have prayed over our discussion. And after much reflection, I have decided to forgive you unconditionally. <laughs> I got to tell you, I slept a lot better that night. In, yes, in the back. Um, I'm working on another book now, but I don't say what the title is because titles and covers are considered marketing decisions, not content decisions, which means that the publisher controls those. And a lot of times the working title that I have in my mind when I'm writing is not the final title. When I wrote Stalking Susan, which is about a serial killer targeting women named Susan, that was my working title, Stalking Susan. And my editor loved it and didn't want to hear any other titles. For Missing Mark, my second book, the working title was actually Never Worn, about the wedding dress want ad. I thought it was mysterious and poignant. My editor thought it was dull and boring. I said, okay, so what do you want to call it, Missing Mark? 
And she said, yeah. <laughs> and then I, you know, she didn't want to hear any other titles. So after that, we had Silencing Sam, Killing Kate, Shunning Sarah, which brings us to Delivering Death. Sometimes people want to know what happened to the name. I think they were hoping their name would end up in a, you know, on a cover of a book. Um, my working title, Between You and I, for this particular book was actually Jailing Jack. Now, if you're in a book club, you can, you know, share that with them and debate a little bit about, um, you know, which title you prefer. We ended up with Delivering Death because my publisher didn't really like Jailing Jack, and she wanted, she liked this mysterious package arriving in the mail. And so they wanted the cover to look like a mysterious package. So we have that. Um, I pointed out to her, and they had delivering as the verb. My titles have three things going at once, alliteration, verb, and name. And that's a lot of action going on in a title. They had the package. They proposed delivering for the verb. And I pointed out to them that whatever name they put after delivering is going to sound like a maternity mystery. <laughs> it had not even occurred to them. And once it did, they weren't sure what to do about this because they had their hearts set on the package. I had thought about it, and I had decided that of the three things going on in the title, the least important was the name. That I didn't think people really bought the book because there was their name on it, that that was not what was driving it. So I had proposed, you know, if they didn't think that it confused people too much, do we have to have the name? Can it be something else? And I proposed either delivering death or, mur or mailing murder. And they loved delivering death. They thought it sounded like a bigger book than Jailing Jack. But I would be interested, after you guys read it, you know, what you think of that. Um, because I thought it was a very clever title. Um, and after you read it, you'll see what I mean. Here, we have an audience member wondering, when Julie started writing Delivering Death, if she was thinking about getting Nick and Riley back together. Well, Nick and Riley have had a complicated relationship. It has not stretched on as long in um, book time as it has in real time. So, you know, their relationship is complicated. Part of that is because of the nature of their jobs. One's, you know, a cop, a security person, um, and one's a TV news person. Um, Riley does not have a whole lot of, you know, close friends. Um, sometimes people say, why doesn't she have girlfriends? Um, and she has some, but even in a newsroom, Reporters don't really hang out with other reporters. The reporters are hanging out with the photographers or you know, whoever's working with them on the story. So um, you know, we don't want to talk about any spoilers or anything, but they do kind of go back and forth and back and forth from book to book. Um, and you know, and people are always asking me about, you know, are you going to get them together? What's going to happen? So you know, it is what it is. And relationships between characters um, can change from book to book because you have, you know, you've got your, you know, your heroine's already cast, her sidekicks are already cast, and you've got other, you know, people that you introduce in it. Now, a lot of times when it comes to murder mysteries, people will, you know, write to me and say, you know, that they, you know, guessed who the killer was, or they couldn't guess who the killer was. Because I don't write with an end lady and don't know who the killer is until, you know, I work it through in the book, sometimes people come up to me and they'll say, I was sure so-and-so was the killer. 
Well, for a while, so was I. <laughs> and if I don't know who the killer is, then I figure it makes it tougher for them to figure out who the killer is. Now, there are people who they love trying to figure out who the killer is. And if they figure it out, it doesn't necessarily ruin the book for them. It just makes them feel smart. They like, you know, having that happen. Um, there are people who sometimes figure out who the killer is and feel like, well, that's a flaw. If I was able to figure it out, there must be a flaw there somewhere. But um, part of it comes down to is, you know, each book's got, what, 12 characters in it? Mathematically, some people are going to just guess who the killer is. You know, if you go with the least likely suspect or however that works. Other questions? Next, we have an audience member asking if Julie Kramer, as a local writer, publishes her books nationally and what her readership is like outside of the Minnesota area. Um, it's published nationally, um, you know, by a publisher in New York. Okay. Um, but my sales are best in the Midwest because I live there, the book's set there, you know, that's not that surprising to me. But I have been touring in other parts of the country to try and get, you know, some traction in different markets as well. Um, for my particular books, um, they're contemporary. Some people write historical mysteries, um, but mine are written in the real moment. Now, I don't know, anybody read Sue Grafton? She writes the Alphabet yeah. series. I love her books. I am very jealous of her because her books, you know, we're on to like 23 now, but they're written in the 1980s. And it makes it easier because she knows what's happening. She, she knows what the technology is. Because I'm writing in the current stuff, the technology keeps changing very rapidly. So I have to try and you know, make it current when it comes out. Now, in the course of delivering death, um, we have a lot of um, Minnesota landmarks that you'll you know, recognize when you read it. We have the Mary Tyler Moore statue. We have the Spam Museum. We have um, the Mall of America. but. Um, one of the things that happened in the course of writing that, while I was writing it, um, same-sex marriage was legal and was illegal in Minnesota. And I wrote it that way for the book. And I had done some research and I had checked around and had been told that the issue was not going to come up at the legislature until the following year. That they were going to wait for a Supreme Court ruling and then there would be discussion. Well, you know, as you recall, um, as time went on, um, the issue gained momentum and they ended up passing it. So a couple of months after I submitted the book to my publisher, I had to call them and say, I need to rewrite that subplot um, because now same-sex marriage is legal in Minnesota. So I had to scramble to change that, to stay current in that. But that's just one of the risks of writing a topical mystery. Whereas if I go back, if my books were set in the 1980s, I know everything that happens. So I kind of, you know, that, but that's what I chose to write. I didn't know any better, so that's what I'm stuck with. Yes. This question is what inspired Julie to write her first book? Well, as far as writing my first book, I just kind of felt like, you know, um, all us journalists, we all think we got novels inside of us. So I sat down to try and write it. Um, I needed a premise. And the premise was, um, came from some cold cases that Caroline Lowe and I had actually covered at WCCO involving some women in St. Paul named Susan who had been murdered on the same day two years apart. And so I came up with the premise of a serial killer targeting women named Susan and killing one on the same day each year. And again, you hear that and you say, well, that's going to be, you know, you might talk yourself out of that. But I kept going. Um, 
it ended up being a hard book to write. And here's what the flaw was. Here's what made it so difficult. I had like six characters all with the same name. I had like six or seven Susans in the book. Um, so I had to you know, write it carefully so that people would, you know, each one would be individually discernible to the reader and the reader would not get confused about what Susan I was talking to. So those of you who you know, are working on your own book, I do not recommend naming all of the characters the same thing. <laughs> I learned my lesson on that particular front. Julie has been known to base characters off of friends and use her friends' names in some of her books. One audience member asked if they ever say anything to her. Occasionally I put friends' names in there, and occasionally I hear from them. Um, in this particular book, um, I actually put my dentist's name in there. Um, and I have not heard from my dentist. My dentist, I know, is wintering in Florida. He's semi-retired now, so I don't know if he realizes it or not. Um, when it comes to delivering death, if any of you have dentists in the family or are dentists, it's an excellent choice for them for a gift because um, we deal with Saint Apollonia, the patron saint of dentists. You're gonna learn a lot about her in the course of reading the book. So, you know, it will really appeal to dentists. So I'm anxious for him to read it and for us to talk, but I guess I'll have to wait for my next checkup in the spring to be able to find out the answer to that. Um. <laughs> Not only does Julie use some of her friends she knows in her novels, but she also uses local landmarks. How does Julie Kramer balance local lore and Minnesota landmarks in her books? Um, because those of you who live in Minnesota will you know, recognize a lot of these places, you will read the book at a different level than somebody in New York. But I would say the same thing about if anybody reads Linda Fairstein's books, she's a sex crime prosecutor in New York who writes um, mysteries that have a lot of New York history in. I don't know much New York history, but I love reading her books and learning about them. So I'm hoping people who don't live here, you know, like reading about it too. But I know that the people who live here and read them, they like the fact that I haven't invented, you know, imaginary towns, that they are real places. I use real restaurants, you know, ones, I mean, my character has to eat, you know, so I use restaurants I'm familiar with. It's fun when people say, you know, as they're reading it, they're thinking, ooh, I've eaten there. It must all be true. <laughs> I once had someone come up to me after an event, and um, they had read Stalking Susan and just loved it. And they said, I've lived here in the state my whole life, but I don't remember that big explosion on the Iron Range. And I had to explain that, you know, my books are works of fiction. They're not memoirs. <laughs> that 90, you know, 7% of what's in my books never really happened. But I like it when people buy into the story so completely like that. It just kind of um, makes me feel like I've, you know, done a good job of weaving that balance. And I try to mix it up with different landmarks. Um, for here, let's get this since we have this here. If anyone's read Killing Kate, it's about a killer who draws chalk outlines shaped like angels around the bodies of the victims. Ironically, it's proven popular with church groups because it get, even though a lot of people die in the book, it gets into a history of angels through the eyes of different world cultures. And has anybody been to Iowa City and seen the infamous Black Angel statue? It's considered the most haunted site in Iowa. Here I am doing my research with it. It's more than 100 years old, and the legend and lore say that if you touch the Black Angel, you'll die in six months. 
And if you kiss the black, if you, you know, kiss the black angel, it is said your heart will immediately stop beating. I mean, as you can see in the name of research, you know, people ask me, have you ever done anything really risky, you know, and dangerous in the course of your research? Well, I touched the black angel, <laughs> and I live to tell about it, so, you know. Our next question is what Julie's routine is when writing and how long it takes to finish a book. Um, it takes me about a year to write a book because that's about how long they give me. Um, <laughs> because they like to have, you know, one about, you know, a year. They think that as readers that you like a series to come out about once a year. Um, and my routine is, and it changes depending on what stage I'm in. Right now I've just had a book come out, so I'm doing a lot of appearances and traveling and that. Um, in fact, next month I'm going to Florida for a couple of appearances. I'll be at Fort Myers speaking at the Southwest Florida Reading Festival. If any of you have any snowbird friends, you know, um, in Fort Myers, would love to see some Minnesotans there. Check my website for the date and the details, juliekramerbooks.com. But um, my favorite stage is the research stage. I love the figuring out what I'm going to do with it. But you eventually have to stop that and start writing, because if you don't start writing, you're not going to have a book. Um, and they don't want to hear about the cool places you visited or the people you interviewed. Um, I mean, I, I talked to a lot of um, experts in the course of doing my books. Um, in this particular one for delivering death, I talked about attorneys who worked you know, on the Petters case. I talked about attorneys who prosecuted identity fraud and things like that. Um, I, you know, it, I've, I've taken tours of the Hennepin County Jail to see how inmates are processed. Um, I do a lot of research. But you have to stop and you have to write. I write at home. I don't go to a coffee shop. Um, but the problem is at home there are always distractions. Julie mentions that a lot of research goes into writing each book. Someone asks if she ever has trouble getting access during this process. Because I spent a career as a journalist, I'm pretty good at schmoozing people and talking them into you know, sharing information with me or letting me lay in caskets or you know, things like that. <laughs> whatever you know needs to be done um, and I you know over the course of you know a career I've you know made friends with you know cops and prosecutors and things like that people who I can speak to and you know ask questions and I know for some authors they do have problems with access but um, I'm with a mainstream publisher they can look me up online and see that I actually am who I say I am I in fact even got um, we talked about the Mall of America, and you've been to the Mall of America, and you all know how big, how big it is. I got a behind-the-scenes tour of the Mall of America. By that, I mean the underground tour. And it's like another city under there. In the course of delivering death, I use a lot of that information. Um, I was given a tour by the director of security, who ends up is a fan of my books, <laughs> and agreed to do that. Um, but he wouldn't let me take pictures just for security reasons. They don't want, you know, people to know what it looks like and all of the efforts that they make. Um, because it's named Mall of America, they consider themselves a security, tar a security risk, you know, um, and a terrorism target. So they do have a lot of, you know, stuff going on. There are a lot of people, a lot of dogs, um, but it was very exciting getting to see that and I'm going to be incorporating some more of that in my other books because that was kind of a fun um, experience. One of the subplots in Julie's latest book revolves around dogs. How did that come about? Um, that's actually a real thing. 
and that was actually being debated in the legislature this year, past year. Um, it was not passed. Um, and it involved um, certain kinds of traps that are used um, to trap raccoons and possums and you know, beaver and muskrat. Um, but some of them are actually, you know, pets are getting trapped in some of them. Um, I always like to have an animal slub plot in my stories because news directors believe that animal stories will attract viewers. So in the course of my books, my heroine's boss, the news director, is always making her try and do a story about animals. So that was the animal one in this book, and I'm glad that that resonated with you. Now, one of the things that I sometimes get in trouble with is, in the course of my books, sometimes I kill animals. I mean, fictionally. I mean, you know, no real animals were killed in the writing of my books. But um, I do sometimes get hate mail from, um, in this particular case, some, you know, a dog was killed to make the point of, you know, how dangerous these traps can be. Um, but occasionally my books, you know, I, I probably killed three dogs in the course of my books. And sometimes people who say they're, you know, PETA and animal lovers and that stuff get mad and write to me about, you know, um, killing animals in my books. They don't seem to care that I've, you know, I've killed like three dogs, but I've probably killed 35 people. <laughs> and that doesn't seem to bother them. Um, but in the course of killing you know, the dogs, they're not killed to show how evil someone is. They're killed to show a problem and to make people want to change. Um, one of my books for Killing Kate, we have um, a dog is left in a hot car and dies. And that becomes part of the plot and part of the story. And you know, that's to draw attention to some of the troubles you know, that can happen when you know, that goes on. But I'm glad that you, you know, thought that that, that that resonated for you. And it ended up you know, being able, I was able to carry that you know, thread throughout the book. My books have a main plot involving you know, murder. But they also have subplots because I want to reflect the world of TV news. And during that world, you do not have the luxury to just work on one story and not pay attention to anything else. You're juggling multiple stories all the time to see what one is going to pop, what's going to hit. And so there's always an animal story going on, but there's other plots and subplots. And when the main plot and the subplot intersect, and you know what I'm talking about, having read that, that's a thing of beauty. I sit back and I look at that and I say, wow, Boy, you, you done good writing it and making that happen. In each of the books, there's one or two places where plot and subplot intersect. And it just, you know, I, I just, I get chills when that happens. When suddenly in my mind, and I don't have an outline, and it comes to me that the reason that that's there is so that this can happen, too. As Julie mentioned earlier, she sometimes likes to put friends and acquaintances in her books one of them being her assignment editor, who was in attendance the night of her discussion. An audience member asks if she ever killed any of her characters based on real people in her books. He, he, he got out alive, but you know, I mean, I think he's had some close calls. <laughs> but there's no telling what will happen next, you know? No one's safe. I have killed some people in my books that have surprised people. Characters that, you know, they never expected that to happen to. But sometimes the reason you do that is so that your, read it, your stories aren't predictable. And readers, you know, they don't know who's safe. And they, don't, they, they can't say, well, she would never kill so-and-so because, hey, I killed so-and-so. Um, and it just keeps them a little bit on edge as well. And I do have regrets occasionally of killing a character. Um, 
there's one character that I killed, um, you know, her former boss that I regret killing because it ended up, you know, this was a good character, a useful character. And then I had to invent a new evil boss. <laughs> and it's hard work inventing new characters. But there's always another evil boss. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and I'm going to have to invent another evil boss, you know? The protagonist in Julie's novels is a character named Riley Sparts. A reader here inquires how she came up with the character and if there is a lot of Julie in Riley. Um, well, somebody had to be the heroine, um, and I'm writing about TV news. I've spent a career as a producer, not as a reporter. Um, but I kind of thought I needed to make the heroine a reporter so that I could use some of the on-air troubles and things, you know, to weave that within the story. So that's how I, sometimes I think I set, you know, I, um, you know, sold out by doing that. But I did it, and it ended up working out good. There's a little bit of people I've worked with in that character, and they know who it is. They see lines periodically that they recognize. Um, and that would be Caroline and Trish Van Pilsen and Kevin Berger. There's a little Esme now and then sneaks in there, you know? Our last question of the evening is if Julie would want her books to be adapted into movies. I think it would actually make a better TV series than a movie. But um, that doesn't happen real often. Um, for instance, who eats Lee Child? He's got a lot of books. He's got like 17 out, 18, and his first one was made into a movie last year. Janet Ivanovich has like 21 books out, and her first, they first made a movie last year. Um, sometimes the delay is because the author doesn't want to give up control. But heck, you know, anybody wants to, you know, I mean, I, I would give up the control just like that, you know, I'm not, I'm, that's, not that's not what the problem is. Um, the problem is there's lots of material out there, and most books don't get made into movies or TV series. You know, I'm hoping it might happen, because there, there usually is a lag time, a long lag time for series before that takes place. And I know my agent, because I whined to her about that early on, like when my first book was published, so when's it going to get made into a movie? And she explained to me, oh, that's my Sherlock ringtone going off on my phone. <laughs> we'll just ignore that. Um, <laughs> um, she, I, she explained to me the way it works. She said, you know, if someone approaches us who actually has the means and wherewithal to make your books into movies, we will listen, we will do something, but we're not going to tie up the rights, you know, for a few hundred dollars by somebody who's never going to make it into a movie so that you can brag that your book's been optioned for a movie. She said, we're just not going to do that, you know. And a lot of people do. That's what happens, you know. People will buy up rights to all sorts of stuff um, and then say, you know, um, you know, that the book's been, you know, optioned. But mine's not optioned. You know anybody in Hollywood, you know, put them onto it. But um, that doesn't mean it won't happen, but you know, um, it is a long time consuming thing. Well, thank you so much for coming tonight. I sure appreciate you giving up men's figure skating to listen to me. Well, that's it from our Central Park Amphitheater event with Julie Kramer. Catch our next club book with Elizabeth Berg at Galaxy Library in Apple Valley on February 26, 2014, 7 p.m. Meet Elizabeth, Get your questions answered and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons. Sign up for our newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. 
We also have photos of previous discussions from this season on our Club Book Facebook page. Thanks again to those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and the Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, Around Town Agency, the Crown Plaza Hotel St. Paul Riverfront, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to the Washington County Library for hosting Julie Kramer and to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.